There are two books that, you know, I've been working on this last year, and I just wanted to say something about it for you. This one is called The Clash of Worldviews, and that came out of a lot of you know, courses I had to teach about, you know, history of theology. But it um, dives into where we are today and the worldviews that are out there that are so wacky they're hard to figure out how people can say what they say and think what they think and believe what they believe. So part of the book helps, I think, in a real simplified way, helps you to understand the wacky world you live in. But this is evangelistic. I mean, this would be something that if you really worked through and read it, you could give to some of your non-Christian, unchurched friends to think about. In it, I also, in a very short, simple way, I try to answer eight of the most common questions people raise about uh, our faith, about Christianity. And I give very, I think, straightforward but simple answers. I don't have to persuade them necessarily, uh, but we do need to give answers, I think, intelligent Answers. They may not believe it or be persuaded that, but at least they know we've thought about it and that we have answers for their questions. They may not be acceptable answers, but they're answers nonetheless because uh, we don't want to just... And it, sometimes that happens in witnessing. You're, you're just totally... Never heard anything like that before in your life. And so you kind of do a tilt when they... Uh, bring these things up, hard drive crashes, and you don't know what they're talking about. Okay, no big deal if that happens, then you just go back and study more. But if you have this, um, I think it'd be good to educate yourselves, but uh, non-Christian friends. But more importantly to me today is this. I really want all of you to to walk away with one of these because this is such something about what we're talking about in our sessions is I just see us under attack in the area of um, sexual impurities and pornography. And listen, I know, I, I know it's powerful and gripping and very, very difficult to walk in consistent victory when you're bombarded with this nonstop. It's almost inescapable. And then there are other things pulling on you constantly in this regard. And yet, we need to be victorious in this area. Because if you're not, you're not going to have confidence with the Lord the way He wants you to have it. And the truth is, you can have victory in it. Consistent victory. You might think, I don't know about that. But you know what? Don't let your past dictate your future. There are promises in God's Word and there's a sufficient Holy Spirit who lives within you. But this is written to help you come there, help you get there into that place of victory. So here's the deal. Okay, I'm sorry. It's $10. You say, oh my land. Hey, if you go to Fuddruckers, you're going to spend $10, right? I mean, time you get the burger you want and the drink and the fries. I just think, you know, maybe I'm being prideful here. I just think this has more lasting value than a hamburger at Fuddruckers. 
you know, I'm just, you know, I just think that. But I really want all of you to, to have one of these. So here's the deal. If you can't afford $10, see me afterwards and we'll work out a deal. You know, I'll take your dog or your cat or something. <laughs> No, I don't like cats, so I'll just take your dog. No, we'll work out a deal. But I really want you to have this and be able to, you know, to have it on in hand. Because I'm going to review some of what's in the book I'm going to talk about uh, in this session. But it's, you know, it's one of those fast, quick overview things that um, will give you an idea. But this will go into it in, in more depth. So there it is, and they're all on the back table there. So these are ten. I think these are, what, five, something like that, maybe? I don't know. But anyway, there you go. So I think we're set to go here, so let's pray and let's get going. Father, we praise you. Thank you so much for who you are and who you are in us by the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful to think that he, the third person of the Trinity, who was there at the creation of the world, same spirit who dwelt in the Apostle Paul and in our Lord Jesus, dwells within us. What manner of men ought we to be or can we be if he were given full power within our lives? So we want to yield to him and let him be in us and through us what he wants to be for the rest of our lives. So meet us in these days, we pray, as we surrender ourselves afresh to you to do things your way. So we entrust this time to you with thanksgiving now and uh, faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I just want to step back a minute and talk just for a brief moment about where we were yesterday and thinking about the man and woman as God created them and then what happened after the fall. I want you to think about this. Yeah, if we talk about God's purpose in creation, the Presbyterians have it right. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man was created for by God for God to know God, Glorify God and enjoy Him, have a relationship with Him. But underneath that, God's design for men and women is different. And if you understand that, maybe it'll help you understand yourself and maybe it'll help you understand women a little bit better. You say, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> well, okay, maybe not. But nonetheless, it gives you a little hope in the matter. Men were designed to accomplish things, weren't we? I mean, he gave us the garden. That's work to do. And that was good. He called it good to tend things, take care of things. I think that's inside our DNA is that as guys, we get a kick out of getting stuff done. Don't you? You you enjoy finishing something and getting it accomplished or building something that you can look at at the end of the day. But just setting goals and meeting them, I think, is a big part of the DNA, you want to say, for men. 
it's not that way necessarily for women. They're not accomplishment-oriented so much as they're relationship-oriented. They were created to be a companion for man. That's in their DNA, is I am to be a helpmate to somebody. I am to be a companion to somebody. And they're good at it, honestly. There are some men that only a woman could live with. (laughs) Isn't it true? I mean, there's some colossal jerks that if we lived with them, it would be the the right fist of fellowship. You know, the guy's just such a jerk. But women somehow can adjust and adapt and make it work with some guys, and so they are good at it. But that leaves them vulnerable, as we know. Ultimately, you know, your accomplishments... You may not accomplish what you want and and all of that, uh, but we can accomplish things in the spiritual realm by faith. And women, they, though, are wired and built for relationships and they think that way. They can find that in the Lord Jesus in complete fulfillment, whether they ever get married and have children or not. But I want you to understand the difference here. I think, yeah, you can make too much of this, but I think it's there. After the fall, both found it difficult to fulfill these ends. Isn't that some of the effects of the fall? That now God said, yeah, you're still going to work, but now you're going to sweat to do it. And you're going to have to overcome the weeds and the briars and the thistles and not anything you do is going to come particularly easy for you. Ouch. And we've all known how that goes when you try to build something and you mess it up or, you know, I've cut this board three times and it's still too short. Yeah, I've done that to dumb things. And it just, life doesn't uh, roll over and play dead for you. You have to work at it. And so all that's because of the fall. We don't get stuff accomplished very easily. And then too, with women, those relationships now are difficult. They're not easy. They're self now in it. And as men, what you and I have to watch is this. Because we're accomplishment-oriented, everything becomes means to our ends if you're not careful. Even the girl becomes a means to your ends of accomplishing your ends, plans, and purposes. So we can't let that become all about our lives in any sense. But I think when you think about this, there's a part of this that's in general sense is true. It help you to understand it. Don't live strictly to accomplish things. You'd be disappointed. Live to glorify God in whatever your circumstances may be. We can have this and understand it, but you can go beyond it. We should be relationship-oriented the way our sisters are more so, at least with the Lord. And so, um, give that some thought. Now, what else is true here uh, in this realm? Well, <clears throat> as I was thinking about this, I think that, you know, men and women, we're created to glorify God. But I think women do it in a, in a special way. 
Now look, when you talk about the image of God, we're made in the image of God. I can spend a lot of time on this, but boy, this just drives theologians pretty much up the wall. What does that mean? That's hard to nail down when you stop to think about it. In what sense are we made in the image of God? Well, you can say some things. I mean, we're not like animals. We have moral judgments that we make. We have a conscience. We have the capacity to worship and to really know God, have a relationship with Him. We're on such an astronomically higher level than the animals that are on this earth, contrary to what, you know, evolutionists try to say. It's just ridiculous. We're way beyond any ape and chimpanzee that ever walked on the earth. Just astronomically, exponentially greater than they are because we are made in God's image and they're not. They're reflections of God like everything. But we're unique. But I think even specifically women are more unique in, in, in when you divide it up. Women... What, when you think of women and what means a lot to is beauty. Now that doesn't have to be on the outside, but it can be. More on the inside, but on the outside too is beauty. Why? Because the Lord is beautiful. And they are uniquely beautiful. But that's a reflection of who He is and what He is. And women in their best moments can be compassionate more than we are sometimes. And gentleness like a mother, kindness, just sheer goodness. But they're reflecting who God is in a unique way as a woman. Now, as men, it's different, I think. Predominantly, we are known for strength. Now, I'm not just talking about being able to bench press 450 pounds or something, you know, like Tim Tebow could 20 times. But uh, that's strength. But there's other kinds of strength, you know, strength of uh, that comes from courage, the strength of will to push through when you want to quit. And that's a strength that, you know, exhibits who the Lord is and what God is too. And then wisdom. That we're to reflect wisdom. <clears throat> Women being more emotional, they need uh, a man in their life who has wisdom, who who sees things more objectively than they're prone to. And they know this. They want a, a guy who's like that, who's wise in his judgments and discernments, and who has strength and courage. Justice, faithfulness, that you're reliable, and... Certainly selflessness would be true for both men and women, but sacrificially so with men. That we're to love our wives like Christ loved the church. That means sacrificially. We lay down what we want uh, to meet their needs continually. So marriage isn't all just about what I get. It's more so about what I give on a perpetual basis. All right, so I hope that helps, you know, pull things together for you and think about, because I, I want you to be uh, glad you're a man. <laughs> the the Pharisees had a morning prayer. Uh, they would pray every morning, 
Oh God, I thank you, you have not made me a woman. <laughs> well, I don't know. I guess, seeing as how we're not women, we can be thankful. <laughs> but nonetheless, be glad you're a man. And, but do it God's way and learn it, the differences. Now then, all that said, and I I'm, oof, have to move along here. I want to talk more specifically today about uh, the problems you face, the temptation and trials you face. And if you really zero in on your life now as a young man, and this would be true for any man, there are two dominant sin issues that you're going to face, temptations you're going to face. Here they are. Number one, pride. Isn't it? That's a young man's sin issue and temptation. It's going to be pride. You think you know pretty much all you need to know. (laughs) There's not much anybody can tell you because you already know it all. I mean, it's easy to get that attitude, isn't it? Uh, It's kind of dumb in the extreme, but nonetheless, that doesn't stop us. We think, I know pretty much, I got all this figured out, you can't tell me anything. Yeah, well, there's a lot more to be learned from older folks sometimes. But also, number two, you think you can run your own life and you don't need others telling you what to do. That's also prideful, isn't it? That, hey, I know me, I know what I want, I make the decisions, I can call the shots now. Well, that also is prideful, too, to think you can run your own life. No, you can't. You're unfit for it. Only Jesus Christ is really the right one to run your life. So to yield to him and to take him and his counsel in a matter is wisdom. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God made you and knows exactly how you're going to best perform on the earth. So getting his plan for your life is going to be infinitely better than anything you can come up with. God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. That means you can't improve on it. So get it and learn it. And I think Mr. Garot is going to talk to you later this week about knowing the will of God. So that will be important sessions. But beyond that, and we could look at all these, and I don't need to go into them, but the bigger one we want to focus in on today is is the lust. Now, there is the flesh within us, and it wars against us. In Galatians, it speaks about this, that this conflict you feel is powerful within you. I know that it is. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. You, you've got an internal battle, war, that, and you're all well aware of it. Uh, just because you came to Christ and were born again, actually that made it worse. Because now the devil kicks in and tries to keep you from following the Lord. And so you wrestle with this. But look at 2 Timothy 2 
in verse 22. There, the Bible itself expressly talks about this. Second <clears throat> Timothy 2:22. Now flee from youthful lusts, he calls them, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he acknowledges that there's youthful lusts. That, I know, is a very, very strong, powerful force in our lives. And you might feel like lust in that sense. It's just impossible to overcome it. And because you, you've been beaten up by it so many, many times. And look, I understand that. But I want to tell you this morning that there is a way that you can experience consistent victory no matter how difficult a, a foe this is and that there's power in, in our Lord Jesus Christ and there is a way for you to be overcomers, even something as difficult as this. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Now, in doing so, uh, as I say, that book I go into in more detail But let's get started with this and what's set before us. And I want to tell you the um, about a young man who faced an incredibly strong temptation in this area, and yet he won. He was he overcame it, and he was victorious. You all know the story. It's Joseph. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 39, and we'll read this story in. You know, I can't read it without saying, wow, this was really something. But he did overcome. So here we are, Genesis 39, and I'll begin reading verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Okay, so he's a slave now. But the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. (coughs) And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. He raised him up to be the number one one over his whole household, and he made him overseer over his entire house. And all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph, and thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. It's like the third time he said this. With him, and there, uh, with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. And then it adds, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a really good looking guy and very sharp, wise, intelligent, and quick minded and ran everything so smoothly. Just an exceptional guy. Now comes the problem. Verse 7. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Wow. She wants to have an affair with him. 
and she lusted after him and really wanted him. So she's willing to take him and, and wants to have that sexual relationship with him. And so Joseph answers her, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he's put all that he owns in my charge. And there's no one greater in his, in this house than I. And, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against? You would think, after all he says, he would have said, sin against who? My master. But he doesn't. How can I do all this and sin against God? What was really important here was not Potiphar in Joseph's mind, but ultimately the Lord himself. That's interesting because it's not what we would have expected. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day after day, he refused to listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household were there inside. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment, just tore himself away from her and it tore his garment and fled from the house. But when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled, she called the men of her household and accused him of trying to rape her. And that got Joseph thrown into prison. So, hey, wow, that didn't work too well. But I want you to think about this temptation for Joseph, how powerful it was, wasn't it? You think, well, here this woman's willing. She might have been a very attractive woman. She was... He was a very, very important man in the Egyptian government, right next to the, he was head of the king, uh, Pharaoh's bodyguards. So she might have been a very attractive woman, and here she's more than willing and desirous of this illicit relationship with Joseph. And then think about this one. Uh, the day comes when they're alone. There's nobody else in the house but him and her, and there it is. Now think about all of this might have gone through Joseph's mind. Well, you know, I could give in to her. It looks, you know, it had to have been desirable to some extent. He's a guy. She isn't going to tell anybody. Nobody's going to know. There's nobody in the house and she's sure not going to tell anybody about this because she has more to lose than I do. So chances of me getting caught in this are pretty slim. And even if she gets pregnant, she could say it's her husband's and I'd be get away with this. So chances of really getting caught or there being any real <laughs> dire consequences to this eh, looks fairly doable and safe on that level, doesn't it? Now look, I know that pornography is even more so, isn't it? Because when you get into pornography, nobody need know sometimes but you, right? So there's not even another woman involved. It's just you. 
And with your cell phones, you can tap into that anywhere you choose in the safety and privacy of your room or somewhere at night. And so you look at this and say, hey, it doesn't involve another person. There's nobody there to, you know, to wrap me out about this or tell anybody about it. So, hey, you know, as things go, this is pretty safe. Chances of getting caught pretty slim. And so you you find it pretty easy to go right into it. So why didn't Joseph? It was just as easy for Joseph to do this, but he didn't. And you know what? He gives us the clue here. He says, I don't want to sin against not Potiphar, but God. Here are two keys you get from Joseph's <coughs> life. Number one, Joseph knew that God would know. <clears throat> no one would know or be told about it because, you know, she's not going to tell on him. Uh, she'd get get put to death maybe. So she's not going to tell. She loses everything. So is it safe? No, because God would know. And Joseph knew that God would know. Now, why did that make a difference to him is because of number two. He valued his relationship with God above everything else. That was the crucial point. He knew that he owed everything to God and he didn't want to displease him in all in any of this. So this really is ultimately his love for God that made him pull back from this. He knew God was the real source of all that was good and right in his life, and he refused to do anything to disrupt that relationship. He just valued his relationship with God above the satisfying of his flesh. So ultimately, it was Joseph's awareness of God and his love for God that made him an overcomer. Now, can you come that far? Because this is going to be fundamental to everything, that we really have a relationship with God and you are aware of His presence and you value that relationship. If you don't value that relationship, oh man, then it's a free fall of the flesh. And ultimately, the flesh will become your master and you will become its slave Whenever it jerks the chain, you will obey whatever it wants you to do. But Jesus come to set us free. He's come to set captives free. And there is a way of freedom in all this. But we do have to value our relationship with the Lord more than we value the sin. Isn't all sin a love issue? Ultimately, do we love the Lord more than we love this sin? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Now, I want you to know that we have more than Joseph has. Uh, that's the amazing thing. Joseph didn't have a whole lot, but he had the Lord, and he focused on the Lord, and he prevailed, he overcame. You and I have resources way beyond what Joseph has. And that's <laughs> what I want us to remember we have a new heart. We've been born again. We've been regenerated. 
So when you come to Jesus, he doesn't just wash your sins away. He gives you a new heart, a new heart and, and has a powerful bent towards God when you're born again. And that heart we need to cultivate towards the Lord. Um, just time's sake, wow. Uh, I will turn here, but uh, I don't want to spend a great deal of time here. But Ezekiel chapter 36 is foreseeing in part the new covenant that's going to come. But look what he specifically says in Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. He's talking about the new birth. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, we're not alone in this. Now there's someone within us, the Holy Spirit, and a new uh, nature within us, a new heart within us when we're born again. So number one, if we're going to overcome sin, you better make sure you're born again. Because otherwise, you're going to be the slave of whatever flesh comes down the road. But if we're really yielded to the Lord, over to Him, and have experienced the new birth, there is... Assets, weapons, and equipment for being overcomers. Now, when you're the Lord's, you're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything has become new. This brings us, though, to the whole subject of what we'd say is sanctification. That's a big theological word. But let me go ahead and, and you know, more or less we can describe for ourselves what is meant here by this. There's a key word here. Because what I want to do now is a lot of this is in my book, but I want to give you an overview of how to live the Christian life. How to make use of your assets, spiritual assets in Christ. Now, here's the beginning. The work of God's free grace whereby the Holy Spirit in cooperation with the believer, renews the believer and the whole man after the image of God, enables the believer to more and more die to sin, live into righteousness. Okay, just what does it mean? That we progressively become more like Jesus in who we are and the way we live. But it isn't just going to happen without our cooperation. Now, when I was a young believer, I really, really wanted to live a victorious life like you do. And you know what? I found it really difficult <laughs> to get there. I mean, I just did. And so I read a lot of books and I'd listen to preachers and all that. And it, it didn't really work instantly well for me at all. And I would hear some guys and, and they'd say, well, look, you need to to memorize the Word of God. You need to stay in the Word. That's the key to, to it all. Okay, there are a lot of good verses like that in Psalm 119. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking uh, heed unto the Word. And um, that if we 
thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So you can't argue with that. That that sounds good, but you know, it just didn't always help me in the matter of temptation. Others say, well, you just need to love God. Well, you don't love God enough. You need to love God more. That means you need to pray more, go to church more, get busy for God in your church and you know, just fill your life with God type stuff. And then, you know what? That sounded good too, but it didn't seem to help all that much in the moments when you weren't busy with other things. So that didn't really ring the bell. Well, others, you know, get a little more deeper. They say, well, you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit. Well, okay, great. How? 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 Some of them would say, well, you, you need to, you're going to be filled with the Spirit if you obey the God's Word. Hey, if I could do that, I wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that isn't helping me at all. So that didn't make any sense to me. If that's what it means. And I would say, well, it's by faith. You just need to stop striving and trying so much and let go and let God do it. Well, that really sounded appealing if that would work, but it didn't really help me when I was pounded with temptation. Where's the Lord here? Because I'm sinking fast and I'm not being bailed out. So being kind of laid back about it, didn't really ring the bell for me either. All right, so what did I struggled with all of this and looked at it all and tried to make sense of it all? It took me years of sorting through this and because I, 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 that's what I want to share with you. Uh, actually, all of these are pieces of a puzzle. Now, do any of you like putting together those puzzle Picture puzzles like 500 pieces. I have no patience for that. You know, I get, you know, plus it's totally worthless endeavor because I have a six year old in my house and I can only imagine spending, you know, four or five days or hours on this thing and she will destroy the entire thing in a matter of minutes, you know, or bump the table or spill her drink all over it. So I don't even try. But I do know them, and I've seen them, and I, more power to you if you have the patience for that. But you know how it works. You put these pieces together, and then it makes a beautiful picture. Well, think of all of this like this whole picture of sanctification. Everything I just said to you is more or less true, but you can't take a part and make it the whole. They are just pieces of a puzzle that make a picture. The picture is going to be the face of Jesus. So what does it really look like? And this is what I came to see. Do I need to read the Word? Do I need to live a life of prayer and worship? Yeah, but why? What I learned with is those Christian disciplines are there for a reason. And as I do them, they fuel, that's my fuel and food for my faith and my love for the Lord. If I neglect God's Word and I'm not a worshiper of Jesus and a person of prayer, what happens? Well, 
it's like would be true physically. You don't eat for two or three days and you get pretty weak. So if I'm not keeping in God's word and keeping in prayer, but that that's not just a religious ritual you're supposed to do. Oh, you got to do this because your parents told you you have to do it or preacher said you have to have your quiet time and you have no reason other than that as to why you're doing it. It's important to know why you're doing this. We'll talk more about it if we can get there. But these things fuel faith and they fuel your love for the Lord. They strengthen it. You need faith and love to do what? To appropriate what God has given you. Now here's the part where you don't always see it, but God's part, He has given you a position in Christ. You're a new creation. You are. Whether you feel like it or not, you're not who you used to be. You don't believe that. You won't act like it. But you are to believe it. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Everything's become new. You're to reckon yourselves dead to sin now and alive unto God through Jesus Christ. I refuse to be like I was or like I used to be. So he's given you a position and that's a new creation in Christ. He's given you a person who lives within you to help you do everything. And he says it to us repeatedly. He's our helper. But if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You say, well, I can't do the Christian life. It's just too hard. Well, hey, you've got a helper. You got somebody right in you to help you do it. If you rely upon him and turn to him. And then there are specific promises you can lay hold of. So you need faith to lay hold of what God has perfectly provided for us, a path of victory. But you also need love because you could know that you could have this, but without love, you won't want it. (laughs) Will you? So you need both faith and love. Both of them. Now, I want you to think real quickly here about this. There's two parts to this, isn't there? There's God's part. There's man's part. Here's where you get the mixing here, don't you? The cooperative nature of this. You need both parts. If you try to do one without the other, you're going to get in trouble. If you just think, well, concentrate on your part... I got to do this. I got to do that. Uh, If you're trying to live on willpower, you already know that doesn't get you very far, does it? Your will isn't very strong against the flesh. So you need a faith in him element to this. But if you go too far, the other extreme say, just let go. God's got to deal with this in my life. I don't know about it. You know, I've had friends who say that, yeah, I know I shouldn't be smoking marijuana, but God just hadn't shown me, uh, talked to me about that yet. Well, I'm talking to you about it, you know. Well, that doesn't count, you know. So God hadn't taken that desire out of my heart. Well, you know, maybe you should just quit, you know, since it's illegal. <laughs> no, you can be too passive in this and it's not going to work. So, 
There's man part, it's God part, but let's keep it straight. The Christian walks on two feet, faith and love. Much, The faith part connects me to the Lord, but faith and love, we need both of these. Now, if you're just trying to live on your willpower, it's like hopping on one foot all the time. Yeah, you're going to get tired sooner or later and, and you'll hit the ground. But you need both of these also. So they come in couplets and it's what connects us to what God has done. If you're trying to live by willpower alone, I don't want to spend too much time on this one, but this is what John MacArthur said about it. To live solely by a set of laws is to live by the flesh and self-righteousness. And, and he just lets you know that it isn't going to work for you. Let's skip it down to the last. Holy living doesn't come from our performance for God, but His performance through us by His own Spirit. So, it's not just willpower here. It's going to have to be on that basis. We talked already about how the Word and prayer fuel faith. And these, if you have a look at it, I'm trying to rush here, but... They do fuel it. And these are specific verses that talk to you about that. That faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. That that's how you're going to fuel your faith. In worship in Romans 4, 20, uh, there that verse says, Abraham grew strong in faith as he glorified God. The more he worshipped, the stronger his faith grew. And then the love factor in Mark 14:38, Jesus said, pray lest you enter into temptation. Implying that, Peter, if you had been prayed up, you wouldn't even have been brought into the place of temptation because you'd see the beauty of the Lord and say no to the rest. But he didn't, and he fell. Now, faith and love... As you said, the, the word fuels our faith, without which we cannot please God, and worship fuels our love, which lies at the heart of everything we do. Faith, then, we need it to appropriate what God has done, and we need love to want to appropriate what He has done. But that's where those disciplines fuel that. But here now is the big deal. God has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. We're just going to have to introduce this because our time is fleeting here. But look at this great, great verse in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. God has given you a perfect salvation. He has. He's given you everything you need for godliness. Do you believe that? It is there. You can live a consistently victorious Christian life, as hard as it's been for you. He's given you a perfect salvation. What is the defect? The defects are faith and love. But that can grow. And that can increase. But you need to know what you have in Christ. 
that your position is in him. When you were dead in your trespass and sin, you're totally under Adam. But when you came to Christ, you were taken out of Adam and placed into Jesus Christ. That changed everything. You became a new creation. You're a different kind of being now. You're all supers. You know, you're not... Uh, mutants, you know, as far as the world is concerned, because now you're a different kind of creature. It's a new creature. You're not like common men anymore. You have the Spirit of God living within you, and you're in Christ. So it's of God's doing. Paul says to the Corinthians that you're in Christ Jesus, who's made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He took you out of Adam and placed you into Jesus Christ. That is profoundly different now. I'm going to go through all that. All that you are in Christ is enormous. But what happened at that time, you were taken out of Adam, placed into Jesus Christ through death and resurrection. The old you's dead, crucified at the cross. It's what Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, now Christ lives in me. What I want you to see in this, and I know it's a lot in a, in a, coming at you in a, in a really quick way, but you're to appropriate that. You're to live in light of it. If you go through the New Testament, which I do and did for many, many years is teaching survey, Paul, over and over again, goes at you and me as believers like this. The Old Testament was emphasis, you got to do this to become this, or do this to maintain your place in the covenant. You know what Paul says? You are this. Act like it. It's to see who you already are in Christ. In Ephesians 5.8, he says this, You once were darkness, now you're light in the Lord, so walk as children of the light. Be who you are. Refuse to believe that you're not, oh, Mr. John, you don't understand. Uh, I'm just a lustful guy. I mean, I'm just super, super wired. And I I just uh, can't quite, that's just me, and I can't overcome it. That's just... No, who said so? You're a new creation in Christ. That's not who you are. If you believe that's who you are, that's probably how you act, but you're not believing what God says about you. God says you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. You can say no to sin. You can. Here's what he says in in Romans 6. Knowing this, you do have to know it and study it, and that's what I deal with in the book, but you're to know this much about yourself, that our old self, that's who you were in Adam, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, and that is that sin principle pulling power within you, might be stripped of its authority over you so that you will no longer be slaves to sin. Do you believe that? That you don't have to be a slave to sin. You've been set free from that. 
But you have to appropriate this. That's why he comes to verse 11 and says, Okay then, now reckon yourselves to be dead to sin but alive unto God. Claim what's yours in Christ. Take what's yours. You know, if you don't, you don't experience it. Suppose you won the lottery. You know, this happens. People win the $200 million lottery and they don't turn in their ticket. Either they don't pay attention to the fact they've won it and they just don't know they've won it and so they don't turn it in. And there's a certain length of time that if you don't cash it in, you lose it. Well, you know, they have to go there and appropriate. It's there, it's theirs, but they have to take it. Well, for you and me, take what's yours in Christ. Appropriate what's yours in Him. That's what He calls us to do, to reckon on this. This is Paul's pattern. He always tells you who you are before He tells you to act like it. Now, let me tell you, we'll finish with this story. And it's kind of silly, but we'll do it anyway. And we'll have to stop with this one. But let's suppose there's a little town in Alabama. And there's this poor girl named Leah Jones. And Leah has a father who's abusive. Been in jail, in and out of jail. The mom got so abused by him, she left. Leah didn't know where to go. She stayed with her alcoholic, abusive father. So she grows up and she finally graduates from high school, but life is horrible for her and nobody pays, you know, they look down on her. She gets jobs. He takes the money to buy his beers and stuff and beats her if she doesn't borrow money to get more. And life's pretty miserable for her. On the other end of town is Robert von Clegg III. I mean, they own everything. I mean, they thousand acre ranch farm and big palatial mansions and, you know, they own it all. You know, the funeral home, the hospitals, the most of the banks and the buildings. So they're the supremely important people in the town. And so he he's well thought of. He's also a good guy. Well, what do these two have in, pro, uh, in common? Nothing. Except this. Bob meets Leah and he loves her. Go figure. How did that happen? He just does. And he tells his parents and they're, are you sure about this? And and they say, well, if you're sure, okay. And so he loves her. And so they marry. Now what happens? Well, Leah Jones no longer exists, right? Now she's Mrs. Robert Von Clegg III. Whole new person that's there. Even, you know, these girls, when they get married, they have to change their driver's licenses and their checking accounts and everything about them because their whole new identity has changed. You are who Jesus says you are, not what your past tells you. You are who He says you are. What He says you are is a new creation in Christ. 
who has power over sin. You can say no to it. Okay, so what else is true? Well, he pays all of her debts. They were pretty substantial, but he pays them all off. He gives her access to his bank account. seems nearly limitless. And then two, his name becomes her name. You dare not say anything against her, at least not openly, because she's a von Clegg now, and that won't sit well with the family. So she has perfect social standing now. What else? She lives in a new house and has a new head over her of that house, and that's Bob. Okay, she could visit her father, but is she under his authority? No. He might say, hey, you got all that money now. Uh, I want you to give me the money. Give me some money. I need some money. I'm sorry, Bob doesn't want me giving you any more money. Well, you know, he might blow a fuse about it all. But she's not under his authority anymore. She doesn't have to say, obey him at all. You're not under sin's authority anymore. You can say no to it. You can. But it's not by willpower. It's by faith in what God says about you is true. You've been already set free. Just claim it and walk in it in the power of the Spirit of God. So finally here, she has love and companionship with Bob. Now, had all this happened, did she earn it? Did she deserve it? No. It's only on the basis of Bob's love and because of her surrender and faith towards him. One last thing in all this, the person and the promises, but here it is. How does the Holy Spirit fit into all this? Well, you want to make sure you no one confess sin between you and Him, and you're relying upon Him. But I know this looks weird, but this is it. Last thing. He helps you appropriate what's yours in Christ. He'll help you do all of this. He stirs your will to want to pray or reminds you of the need for it and the need to get in the Word. Then He works within your will to strengthen love and faith. And at the moment of temptation, He's there to to stir you in the right direction as you depend upon Him and appropriate what's yours at the cross that you might make the right choice. So He lives within you to help you do everything we've talked about. That's His role. I mean, there's a lot more to this, but that's why I knew I couldn't do it all. But there's a book to help you in that. So let's stop there and pray. Father, thank you so much that you've given us a perfect salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. We just want to learn how to appropriate it, how to live in light of it, how to make the most of it. For all of that, we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.